Before we begin, I wanted to give a huge shout out to the folks at Amazon Music for partnering with us on this episode of the Inside Line F1 podcast. But more on this later. Right then, let's get right into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second part of the Otmar Safnauer interview on the Inside Line F1 podcast. I mentioned second part because part one was quite the bomb. Otmar revealed so much about Force India, about how they made the magic happen. And you, Kunal, were there at that time. What was it like from your perspective? And what was Otmar's method of working like? I was actually there when the magic happened. You know, it's like being a part of the magician's side rather than the audience, right? But frankly, you know, I explained a very human side to Otmar, but the the more uh, interesting side was also the efficient side. You know, you always walk into conversations and there'll always be that one person who knows exactly the question to ask. Like, what's the hook, as we say in the world of content marketing? Two people who were really good at what's that hook in a conversation in real life were Otmar Safnauer, but even more so, Dr. Vijay Malia. And I think that's why their partnership also worked so well with delivering on all the magic uh, around the Force India Formula One team. And that's what we covered in part one. Folks, in this particular episode, we are going to be covering the other side to it. The time when Otmar almost got racing point to P3 in the Constructors' Championship. The time when they were unofficially known as the Pink Mercedes. So much scrutiny around that time. How did Otmar and the team manage that entire period? And also, Kunal, best thing of all, we got to know some insights about Alpine and why, even though they keep on changing names and management and liveries and drivers, they just never seem to win a championship. That, for me, was my best part. What about you? I think my best part was also about Alpine because in this episode... We've, you know, sort of dug deeper into his current journey. In the previous one, it was about Force India, how he made things happen there. And now it's about Alpine and why things didn't work here. What were the difficulties in getting things work here? So hearing his version of the Alpine story is what is definitely the most exciting one. Talking about the number of people who've been in the team, talking of all the decision making or the slowness that hence is impacted. And the fact that Alpine, you know, one of the things that you and I have spoken about ever since Somil is Alpine's lack of a competitive reference in a customer team. How is that impacting the works team from France? So lots of lots of in the moment talk with Otmar in this episode. That's what everyone should expect. Let's get right into it then. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Otmar Safnauer. Super. So, Atma, firstly, I wanted to talk to you about the Force India Times, right? Because we spoke so much in depth about it earlier as well. Uh, but we didn't quite touch upon what was your personal favorite Force India moment out of all of those. If you had to pick one, would it be Bahrain 2014 or perhaps the win that you got in Sakhir later? Or any other ones that come to mind as well? I see that's put you on the spot. <laughs> My favorite Force India moment. Hmm. Probably, probably one of Sergio's, maybe Sergio's Monaco podium. 
And what makes it more interesting is at that point of time, you guys clearly weren't up there fighting with the rest of it as it became a thing in 2020. So, I mean, can you talk us through that weekend as a whole? And normally with Checo, how, how is it that always whenever someone had some sort of error, Sergio was always there towards the movie, always bouncing on it to get well, around? Sergio was a great racer and, um, <clears throat> you know, he, he often in the lower formulas wasn't in the best team and uh be because of it he had to learn his racecraft in the middle of the field and uh when you don't always start at the front and you want to uh get to the front uh you learn how to do that and uh, you know some some of the competitors that he's raced against Hulkenberg for example he always started at the front and finished at the front in the lower formulas but uh, that wasn't the case with Sergio. You know, he he would start somewhere in the midfield and then try to work his way up to the front. And because of that, he, he developed a, a great racecraft. And uh, when he came to Force India, you know, we were, I can't remember how many pole positions we had, if any. You know, we, were, we weren't qualifying up in pole or front row. Uh, but not far behind, so we were somewhere in the midfield, and then he just did a great job at uh, taking that position that he was in and, and moving forward. And he learned um, he learned his racecraft like that early on in his career, and he was brilliant at it. And, and because of it, he would score a lot of points, was very tenacious, would be on the podium every once in a while, and did very well for us. Where Hulkenberg, uh, you know, won everything in the lower formulas coming up. And they were pretty evenly matched. I think Nico beat Checo one year and Checo beat Nico the other year. So it was really good. And that actually brings me on to Esteban Ocon. Uh, because I remember you guys had such a special bond, not just in one team, but two of them. I remember you once saying, Otmar, that he was a future world champion. What do you see in Esteban? What do you find as the most interesting or the most best quality about him? Well, er early on, I mean, you could tell. We, te we tested a few uh, young drivers, and Esteban was probably the best of all those that we tested. And, uh, you, you know, th there's a few things. One, um, he, he, was, he had great car control, very skillful in the car, uh, but also he wanted to learn. You know, he, uh, he was very keen to listen, very keen to do what the more experienced engineers were telling him to do to get more uh, performance out of the car. And uh, he always tried things. Um, so, you know, that's if you've if you've got the talent and you've got the ambition and want to learn and follow direction and are easily taught and you need you need all those elements to become world champion, which is why I said, you know, he could be a future world champion. But how did that journey with him begin? So clearly you must have seen his work at Manor in 2016. And then at what point did you realize, okay, this is the guy I want in my team next when Nico goes. At that point, he still had done not even a full season, right? It was only half a year. Yeah, and we, we, we got to know him in, in testing, really. And uh, there, there's nothing like putting him in your own car, looking at the data, uh, looking at... Uh, at his data overlaid with a racing driver's data whose quality you already know. And, uh, you know, if, if he can match or get really close very quickly, then you know he's good. And, and it was that that did it much more so than 
looking at them in other other cars. But Akbar, uh, that really brings me on to today because you folks have so little testing time in comparison to what you had previously. Just scouting and hunting drivers, do you feel it's more of a risk now because you can't quite put them in the car and figure it out? So is it more... Yeah, it's it's more of a risk now, but you can still, these days, you can, and not all teams do it, but I think most by now do, you can put them in a two-year-old car, and you can put them in a two-year-old car next to uh, the racing driver, or um, just overlay the data from what the racing car driver did, and, and then you have that basis of comparison. Uh, but yeah, you're right. In a in a in a uh, a, a new car or, or this season's car, it, it's very limited. But with Esteban, I, I love how it worked out. And we spoke earlier about uh, Spa 2018, that big moment where both of your cars were doing so well. And then Esteban also qualified so good too. What was your favorite moment with him? And clearly, you you have a very special bond with him, do you not? Uh, yeah, in, in, in Spa 2018, he, yeah, really well coming out of uh, administration, you know, having the team. Uh, unsure of its uh, of its future, and and having him perform to that level was uh, was really good. It just shows, uh, you know, their their mental toughness, and uh, that's another element that you need to uh, to be world champion. You know, mental toughness is up there with uh, with driving skill. And then when you had to tell him that he wasn't a part of the team for the next year, that must have hurt, right? What was that moment like of communicating to Esteban that he wouldn't be in the team next year? Yeah, so I I, uh, I was very confident that because of his uh, skill level uh, that he would find uh, another drive in Formula One that that wasn't going to be his last. So um, although ne- you know ne- never pleasant, um, I, I wasn't worried, and eventually I was proven right. I think he spent a year uh, as reserve at Mercedes, and then after that he uh, he went to uh, went to Alpine. Um, and, and that's because, uh, you, you know, he de- he deserves to be in the sport. Actually, I love that you've brought this up because that brings me on to 2020. Now, can I just say, I'd really like to commend you for that incredible season that you folks had. Finally getting the team's first win uh, in such crazy circumstances, but also having a car that was challenging for many podiums all throughout the season. But it was a tumultuous year, right? Leading up to it, so many people were literally verbally throwing stones at your team. But how did you all manage it? Like, you all knew clearly that the car was legal, but fending off the others, that must have taken so much of your mental energy in 2020, no? Well, by, yeah, by the time we had to fend everybody off, the car was what it was. Uh, we, did follow, we did follow the rules, um, so we, we weren't illegal. Um, there was a, uh, you know, the, in, in the past, if I remember correctly, we always bought our gearboxes, um, powertrain and hydraulics from mercedes and mercedes was the only team at the time running a low rate concept um and so we would always buy gearboxes from them from a team that was running a low rate concept and because of that concept we were we had constraints as to how much rear ride height we could run we couldn't go any higher because of their gearbox design because of the pickup points on the uh, for the rear suspension, and therefore we were always compromised. You know, we would run a gearbox that was designed for a low rate concept, but we were running a high rate concept, and that gave us constraints and limitations as to how much we could d- develop that car aerodynamically. We we couldn't develop it to its full 
So when we finally could afford to buy suspension for Mercedes, uh, for example, then we we could also run a, a low rate concept. Um, the first time ever we we're able to run a low rate concept with a, a gearbox that was designed for a low rake. Uh, and, and lo and behold, um, you know, we, uh, we had a much more performant car and that was the car that won. And that was also the car that finished, uh, on the podium more often. And had we not had, uh, I think we had two engine failures in a row at the end, we would have finished third in the championship. I think we lost out to third by a few points and we're in a very good point scoring position in two races. I think one, we would have been on the podium either second or third, the penultimate race. And we had an engine failure with, I don't know, maybe six laps to go, something like that. Uh, and had that not happened, we would have finished third in the championship, but it did happen. And then the very next race, we again had to finish, um, uh, in, in the points and ahead of McLaren, if I remember right. Um, and we were doing just that and, uh, brand new engine, um, uh, because the, the previous one had failed, uh, and, and that one failed too, uh, in the first, I don't know, quarter of the race, which is unusual, uh, for Mercedes, but it did happen. And, and that cost us third in the championship. This actually leads me to a point about, you know, uh, when did you know that, your time was up at Force India Racing Point, Otmar, because you were really leading the team so well. And there was a change of management, as we spoke about earlier. You know, I I, I, I didn't know until uh, probably quite late in the year, or in, in December, November, December, that, uh, you know, mo most of my job was... Uh, uh, w was taken by uh, Martin Whitmarsh, who was just recently hired, and um, uh, you know, at, at that point, where you know, for twelve years, I used to lead the team, run the management, uh, all the management meetings, you know, help in significant and senior decision making the decision making process. And like I said, when ninety percent of that work was taken away from me, then it was you know, the writing was on the wall that. Uh, uh, Lawrence wanted uh, a different management uh, team, and um, you know uh, I had a very very good run, but uh, it, it was uh, it was time to go, uh, which is which is what happened, and um, it, it's uh, you know it's 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 fact. Uh, but I look back at the times that I was there, moved, taking the team from last to significantly or to uh, fourth and, uh, and fourth, you know, three, three times, if you include racing point towards the end there. Um, and you know, I, I wish the, all the people there that I hired that are good people, I wish them luck to be in, in being able to repeat that. But so far they haven't been able to, um, I'm sure they will in the future, but, uh, sitting here right now today, um, you know that I think they've they've been seventh and fifth, um, and it was it was really nice to, or it's really nice now to to look back and um, and and remember those times and you know it's a bit nostalgic looking back at all those times where, like you say, we've won races, we're on the podium, we regularly finished fourth in the championship, 
Um, should have been third one year, but you know, everyone could say shoulda, coulda, woulda. Uh, but we did it. We did it, and uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not there anymore. And I, I wish them, wish them luck. That uh, you know, there's a lot of good people there that they can repeat that and do even better. But only time will tell. I, I love how you just look at it in such a broader perspective about your time over there. But then immediately came Alpine, and I'll be honest, Otmar, I found it to be. quite a move because normally team principals tend to take some time between jobs but you went there literally almost immediately so what was the thought process like and how did that move actually come about that's because there was a rare moment of uh uh my leaving um Aston and Alpine uh needing as uh, a, a leader and team principal they uh didn't have that structure before they had two uh directors but no team principal uh they wanted to change that to uh to to move it into just having a team principal i i was uh i was available and uh, then they started talking to me so it was just fortuitous that the timing of of their need and and the timing of my departure was uh was the same but it is also the team you fought the most fiercely in your time at force india was there any sort of uh, animosity against you even a little bit or was there just respect about what you've done against them all the way through no 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 animosity uh yeah we used to uh we used to beat them regularly um uh, you know to to finish fourth the the only ones that uh you know we didn't beat were the big 3 which was uh mercedes ferrari and and red bull So all those years we finished fourth we finished ahead of 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 the folks at Enstone. So no not no animosity when I went there I've uh, you know I I learned that many of the people that I had worked with in 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 the past at at other teams including at Honda and British American Racing and even uh even Force India in the early days they were they were working there so I I knew a lot of the people already um and they they're they're a good group too um you know almost well most teams of formula 1 if not all of them have uh, outstanding people in them uh one compared to you know say the the rest of the society it's a it's a microcosm of uh, the best engineers in the world and it's and they had him there as well um at alpine and um when i when i got there it was just a matter of uh, adding some further resource that they didn't have not that the people they had uh weren't to the right level it's just they had pockets of uh, uh of knowledge that uh, w- was missing and uh, i i started to uh populate those uh pockets of knowledge that they didn't have along with the rest of the technical team so we in my year and a half we probably hired almost 80 people all all in the technical area so that which was significant and uh, and because we did that uh you know the 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 team started getting better and my one year at alpine you know i left mid season 23 but uh 22 although the car was already designed and developed by the or did not develop the the, the initial car was done by the time i got there uh i think i made significant change in order to enable us to finish fourth uh mm-hmm. and you know again we're we're fourth uh behind the 
big three teams again uh, my my one year at alpine and otmar i want to ask you when you came to alpine just what did you find can you tell a lot about how the team is run from the outside as well being competitors so when you came there what did you find was missing uh, there, there, i mean there there's some areas that uh, um at for for example aston or mercedes which i also knew well uh they they had much more capability in those areas uh you know uh deep knowledge of the tire uh, a good tire model for example uh although their tire engineers were uh very clever um y- you know um <clears throat> very well educated but they were they were junior in their experience um and and you need both you need really smart people and also experienced people to be able to get the most out of a subsystem uh that you know there are other areas that they didn't have a head of uh their aero performance group for example and needed to bolster uh, their vehicle uh dynamics group there there are areas that uh that needed improving and and we embarked on it pretty much straight away but i always like to uh assess the situation before i start making changes so um you don't just make change and guess at the result or the outcome of the change you have to do it um methodically and strategically and and with some knowledge so i took some time gaining the knowledge with all the other uh uh seniors uh that, who were there at the time some of which have left you know uh, pat fries at um williams now and and he was he was instrumental as well in in making some of these changes and identifying areas that needed improving and by the time i got there there was already uh there's already a a, a a written plan in place as to areas that we needed to look at and you know i agreed with most of them and and added to some of them actually i i like that you brought up the team structure because from the outside otmar it really confuses so many people like there's a ceo there's a team principal there's a racing director then there's a racing consultant as well like who really runs alpine what what is the structure actually like there well you know the this the ceo's job is uh uh most of the time more strategic and um medium to long term focused as as opposed to day to day but also uh you, you know the the other thing a, a team principal must do is if there's if if there are short term issues then you you know you, you take a deep dive in those short term issues until they're fixed and you do your best to to help that and you've got to have a good uh uh introspective view of when you do take those deep dives whether you're actually helping or hindering uh because if if you uh, as a team principal start um delving into uh, the minutia of an engineering problem it's probably uh the case that the engineers working on that problem know it better than you do um and you should let them get on with uh with solving it you know there's a there's a leader of uh Boeing and uh and also Ford Motor Company who uh who was CEO at both and and a great engineer Alan Mulally used to always say um you know two things one uh you should always acknowledge your problems and two your team is a solution never the problem um so even if you spend your time in in a short term problem you should always let your team come up with a solution you just lead them to make sure that the focus is there and give them the resource they need to overcome the problem
So where do you find the gap, Otmar? Because I've seen that in the last decade or so, Alpine as a team, uh, they've changed names many times, they've changed liveries many times, changed management structures many times as well. But regardless of whatever the intent of the board is, for some reason, Alpine is always stuck where they are. Why do you think that is the case? It's not like uh, they've not committed money to it, no? Yeah, it, it's it's not a matter of... I, I mean, I think uh, Pat Fry... Uh, said it earlier it, it's not really a, a matter of uh, money commitment these days although it could have been money commitment in the past but to you know have ambitious ambitions of of winning world championships you've got to do a lot of things right and and now it, it looks like one of those things that you had to do right was uh in the past um invest in the tools and infrastructure that was required to win so it's it's difficult um, as a team who didn't have that because of sales or different ownerships, or and then come back and say, "Look, uh, we're we're going to win in the short term." Well, you don't have the infrastructure that all the other teams have that uh, invested over the last ten years, for example, or fifteen years. You didn't do that, or the previous team owners didn't do that. And you can't get that overnight, and now especially with a cost cap. You can't get it overnight, and uh, and the other thing is, you know, getting the right people. So, the tools um, are often uh, designed, developed, um, uh, specified by the people. So it's people first, but it's people and tools. And um, th- these days, because of the way contracts are written, uh, you it, it just it doesn't change overnight. It takes time, and uh, and like I said, especially with the cost cap that's uh, come into play now, uh, it's more than just uh, it, the cost cap for um, operational expenses. It's also uh, cost cap for capital expenses. There's a CapEx cost cap, and that CapEx cost cap can hold you back in improving infrastructure as quickly as you want, even if you have the money. But then why are Alpi not able to get the best people if you feel that's the missing link between them getting upwards? Well, it, t- it takes time. First, you've got to you've got to identify who they are at other teams if uh, if that's where they are, um, and and then two, uh, you, you've got to have a compelling reason for them to leave that team and come to yours. And there are reasons for people to do that. And then three, they have to be available uh, out of contract, and and that's a rare thing. Um, you, you know, it's uh, the the probability that they're out of contract, right? When you approach them and need them, is is pretty is low. Uh, it, it's the likelihood is more that they're you know have got a couple years left on their contract or at least one. Um, so th- those are some of the hurdles that you have to overcome in uh, in getting people. But like I said, we hired 70, 70 of them or seventy. It was between seventy and eighty in a year and a half, and and that's significant. And I think we did a good job in doing so. And do you feel the current management is taking a step in the right direction all the way through, like the vision that it, you set out? Yeah, it's hard to know what's happening there now. Uh, you know, I'm uh, uh, happily uh, working in my garden, and uh, I haven't been back since. So uh, I have no idea. And, um, and and time will tell. You know, let's see how uh, uh, how the car performs in, in just a few months' time. You know, in, in March... Uh, or maybe even end of 
February, start testing in Bahrain and, and then you'll know. And Otmar, I want to talk about your personal experience because Alpine must have been your first proper time leading a customer, leading a works team, right? And at Force India, obviously, you folks were customers buying gearboxes, engines. But was it a change in approach and style for you now that you had the entire car with you? Uh, yeah, yes. So there is, uh, there, there's a lot more, um, dialogue between the, um, the, uh, uh, engine side or the powertrain side at, at, uh, at Veery with Edstone. There's trade-off decisions that you talk about and, and make, uh, in order to optimize the entire package where we did that at, uh, at Force India Racing Point Aston with Mercedes, uh, however, their uh, number one uh, a, a team that they're looking after or having those trade-off decision meetings with were their own team, you know, uh, Mercedes Grand Prix. So we were, although often, uh, you know, both us and Mercedes and whoever other customer they had wanted similar things, they uh, sometimes weren't exactly the same. And I don't blame them for, uh, you know, taking the input from, uh, you know, from their, uh, <clears throat> from their, uh, um, their brothers down the road, so to speak, from, you know, from their te teammates in, in Brackley. Um, you know, that was their focus. That was, uh, that, that those were their objectives because they wanted to win as a team. And I don't blame them. It's just, that's what happened. So they're there were times where, uh, you know, we, we got what we were given and uh, had to make the best of it. But having said all that, Mercedes did a great job for us uh, with, with, the, with the powertrain. We were always confident we had one of the best powertrains in, in putting the Mercedes in the back of the car. So I was about to ask you on the customer team, right? Because at that point, Otmar, uh, Mercedes obviously had for Symbia, a racing point, of course, uh, and Aston Martin eventually. But at Alpine, you had no other team to work with. Do you think that impacts Alpine as well? The fact that there's nobody else to share that much data and also build up the power you Well, there, there's, you know, there's two sides to that coin. Um, in, in, a, in an era of frozen engines, uh, I, I guess, uh, and, and the, only, uh, the only opportunity you have to make changes is uh, for reliability's sake. Um, and it, it's, uh, you know, it's often that you're, if you're making reliability changes for uh to improve uh reliability you you always have an eye on okay well if i'm able to make this change uh how can i do it such that yeah i improve reliability in the first instance but in the second order i get a little performance out of it too because uh i'm, I'm allowed um and i think the more teams you have and, and the more reliability issues that creep up because other teams will run the your powertrain in, in a in a different installation that gives you a little bit more latitude on uh, making those changes and, and hopefully improving performance a bit not much but a little bit uh, but on the other hand it does uh, it, it it does help just to focus on one team you've got less distractions and like I said you, you don't have to listen to anybody else for their um, trade-off decisions that they want but you're right. The the if it's just one team you have, then uh, the learning is a little bit more limited, and uh, ultimately it's about learning and, and and getting better. And Otmar, you know, we also spoke of the structure of Alpine and and so on. 
and you had a fairly uh, large number of powerful people in in the structure there was alan prost of course uh, mr professor himself there was david abrivio laura mekis etc you worked with did you believe and you know given how you had hands on and hands off approach with vjm and lauren stroll did you believe that having so many powerful people in management positions actually convolute your decision making processes at alpine yeah so it was laurent rossi um it wasn't uh it wasn't as efficient as other formula 1 teams that's for sure and it also meant that uh you know the the decision making process wasn't as direct as it needs to be uh for a for a, a high performing formula 1 team it needed to be streamlined and uh i think uh you know pat fry in his interview i don't know who he did it with uh talk, talked about that significantly so the 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 second last question is are you in favor of more teams in formula 1 the 11th and the 12th team that everyone's of course 12th is not happening but the 11th team and andretti are you in favor of them so me me personally is look i'm i'm in favor of uh uh the the right amount of teams to make sure that uh formula 1 is uh um healthy uh all, all the teams can thrive and the fans get a good show um if we end up with an 11th team that um uh, isn't financially stable or doesn't add to the show um and and just takes away and and you know and the fans don't appreciate it or enjoy it then we probably shouldn't do it however if there's 22 cars on the grid and uh, they're all closely matched and uh the fans enjoy having uh another two cars and two more drivers and that's what we should do but if there was an 11th team would you see yourself leading that team uh given that you have american roots yourself artmar but it, it all depends on who that 11th team is and it also depends on whether they <laughs> they need somebody with uh you know with with my experience and my skill set uh but first first and foremost there's got to be an 11th team with a with an entry and and so far there isn't interesting but how how does one get hired as a team principal if if that's the last one we can go to you apply okay <laughs> see you boys Nice talking to you. Okay, we'll be in touch. Take care. Bye. See, I made you laugh. <laughs> Incredible to hear from someone like Otmar Safnauer, who's given us so many insights on how Formula One today is working. And the point for me to really watch for is two, three years down the line, how do these smaller teams like Williams, like Haas, like Alpine, like Aston Martin, how do they react with new investment and? can they over time actually catch up to the likes of ferrari mercedes and of course the dominant force red bull racing but that's all we have from otmar safnauer folks however that's not all we have on the inside line f1 podcast make sure you subscribe to the podcast to listen to all of our previous special episodes with the likes of guests such as mika hakkinen ravish shastri who else did we have helmut marko as well so many esteemed people from the formula 1 barrack who came on here to share their stories and by the way a few really fun episodes on the upcoming season are also going to be coming up very very shortly thank you so much for listening folks and we'll see you soon bye bye
thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Inside Line F1 podcast. Before we ended, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to Amazon Music once again for partnering with us on this episode of the podcast.